From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. We will continue on a remorseless mission to squeeze Russia from the global economy piece by piece, day by day, and week by week. One thing, of course, we could also do is to make an open and unconditional offer to Ukrainian refugees to house them in the United Kingdom. We haven't seen all of what Putin's going to do at the moment. We do not know what his end goal is. You're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Caroline Hepker. The theme of this week has been the cost of living crisis, and we've had some interesting retail and consumer confidence data out this morning, off the back of England lifting all COVID restrictions last month. So retail sales actually fell three-tenths of one percent in February, that perhaps reflecting in more Britons heading to pubs and restaurants. Clothing sales picked up as more people returned to the office, but consumer Consumer confidence plunged for a fourth month in a row to its lowest since November 2020 as concerns about the surging cost of living and the war in Ukraine weighed on sentiment. So the week for the UK economy has ended on a pretty grim note. It punctuates the debate after the Chancellor Rishi Sunak delivered his spring statement on Wednesday. Sunak's high spending response to the pandemic made him a front runner in the race to succeed the Prime Minister Boris Johnson. But then his decision to bank financial firepower rather than use it to help Britons facing a record hit to living standards has taken some of the shine off. Facing a growing public backlash, even members of his own Conservative Party say that Sunak should have done more and some privately are worried about the party's electoral prospects on the back of that. For more on this, we're joined by our UK economy reporter, Lizzie Burden. Lizzie, really good to have you on. So it kind of, you know, sums it all up, doesn't it? The retail sales figures and the consumer confidence figures that were really grim today. And this kind of question about Rishi Sunak, whether he's actually done enough to help voters, to insulate voters. He talked about being the standby you chancellor. Mm-hmm. Well, these figures aren't even the worst of it yet, Caroline. It's going to get worse when the Bank of England says we're heading towards double digit inflation. So that will weigh on retail sales figures in the future. But talking about our spring statement this week, after any budget, any mini budget, the obvious criticism is, what about these people? What about those people? He could have done more. You were, you were expecting Rachel Reeves, the shadow chancellor, to get up and say that. But if you go through the measures that Rishi Sunak announced, the fuel duty cut, the future income tax cut, they're great if you're a worker who drives i.e. Middle England. But you have to think about whether he's done enough for the people who are going to get hit by this hard, this crisis the, the worst. And conspicuously absent from his statement was additional support for the poorest households. The Resolution Foundation says it will push 1.3 million people into absolute poverty next year, and that's including half a million children. And that's the first time Britain's ever seen a rise like that outside of recessions. And we talked about this 
balance before the statement you and I mm-hmm. um, between catering to the poorest and helping out the middle and not forgetting about them. I've written about it. Sunak would have been acutely aware that it would have been a political nightmare to forget about Middle England, not just for the Conservatives at the next election, but also for him personally if he wants to be the next Prime Minister. They're election swingers. And so he has catered to that demographic. But in doing so, as you say, he's united think tanks and lobby groups against him. So even though he always said, and he said it again yesterday, that he couldn't ease all the pain, now you have to wonder whether people when they're hungry and cold, will still think of him as the Chancellor who delivered the furlough scheme. Absolutely. And I mean, words like destitution in Mm. Britain, I mean, those are, you know, weighty terms and so many people suffering. It's really pretty difficult. Having said that, I mean, the other thing is, it's that we are now at a point where heavier tax burden on Britain that, than we've had versus, you know, compared to the 1950s, heaviest in decades. And yet Sunak trying to emphasise that he's a tax cutter. Is he? Well, Torsten Bell, the chief executive of the Resolution Foundation, says he's prioritised his tax cutting credentials over helping the poorest Britons. And this was, in a sense possibly one of his last chances to show his tax cutting hand before a leadership election which he may face against Foreign Secretary Liz Truss who has never shunned comparisons to Margaret Thatcher and this is why he's advertised now that he plans to pull the biggest lever he possibly can just before an election in 2024 the one percentage point cut in income tax but the Office for Budget Responsibility the OBR says that tax cuts announced this week only offset a sixth of the tax rises since he came into post two years ago now you could say all this pandemic spending is very expensive we need to pay for it somehow but the Resolution Foundation says that the Treasury will take more tax from seven in eight workers in the years ahead. So yes, he's cut taxes, but also the Treasury's helped out by the fact that you've got a broader tax base and a lot of the headroom he had came from wage growth among the highest earners. So he's got more tax revenues from them. So uh, that helps him in his trying to appear as the tax cutter whilst uh, also taking more revenue. Yeah, okay. Very, very um, interesting and uh, you know, a little more complex than I think perhaps is quite easy and straightforward to advertise to voters. Um, stay with us, um, Lizzie. You, we'll be back to you in just a minute. Lizzie Burden, though, our UK economy reporter. You also mentioned, though, that perhaps those think tanks have all been united in their criticism of the Chancellor. Well, we spoke to a, a whole raft of them this week. So I want to recap you with a few of the highlights of our coverage then of the spring statement. This week, I spoke to Ben Zaranko, senior research economist at the Institute for Fiscal Studies, and asked him what did the Chancellor do and what more he really could have done. Have a listen. The Chancellor took what is a largely improving situation for the public finances, driven by higher inflation. He chose to bank some of it, perhaps in the hope of using it for pre-election tax cuts, and he chose to offset some of his existing package of tax rises with a smaller package of tax cuts, mainly to try and burnish his reputation as a tax-cutting chancellor. And what he chose not to do was to provide anything in the way of substantial support for lower-income households or for pensioners. If you're a pensioner who doesn't drive, or if you're someone who relies on um, working-age benefits for your income, there was almost nothing in the way of support for those households in yesterday's 
statement. So it was, it was quite brave in the face of a, such a large squeeze of living standards, as you just alluded to. Um, but the Chancellor seems to have one eye on, perhaps later this year, or perhaps close to the election, where he really wants to be able to cut taxes. And in the meantime, he's willing to let households take a really substantial hit to their living standards as part okay. of that. But I suppose uh, he gave you know, his explanation, which is that the outlook is incredibly uncertain. I mean, you say that public finances, um, you know, are looking okay now, but the issue is about whether they'll stay that way. Borrowing over the next fiscal year forecasts at £99 billion, £16 billion higher than previously predicted, debt interest costs hitting a record £83 billion. The point of those figures, essentially, Ben, is that, you know, the public finances could get a lot worse. We don't know. Absolutely. And the OBR highlighted just how uncertain things are at the moment. Clearly, this is a particularly precarious moment, not just for the UK economy, but for the, for the global economy. And we don't know how things are going to pan out, particularly in terms of how long this surge in energy prices will last, how long inflation will take to get back to something more like what we've come to know as, as the new normal, and what that means for the government. So, yes, you could say that Mr Sunak is being prudent and he's perhaps you know holding some some of this money back in case he needs it, in case things do turn out worse. I would say that that isn't the rhetoric he was giving. Um, he was particularly emphasising uh, the tax cuts and the fact that he wants to be able to make more tax cuts. That really does seem to be the direction he's going. And I think that also it says a lot about his priorities. He was willing to spend about half of the windfall he received. He chose to spend that largely on things that benefit middle earners and particularly drivers. Um, rather than those at the very bottom, the most vulnerable, those who would be most affected and those who would most struggle to weather the storm. So I think we did learn something about his priorities. It's not just about this, uh, it's all such an uncertain environment. There's also political choices that he made there. He could, for instance, have chosen to increase benefits in line with a more recent measure of inflation. So they're currently going to go up. Well, they're not currently. They're going to go up by the September measure of inflation, just over 3%. He could yeah. have said, OK, we'll take the January or February measure. That wouldn't actually cost anything in the long term. But he's chosen not to do that. Uh, and that's a political choice. OK, so what also about then? I mean, th- th- there was a lot of focus, of course, on households, but we do have to think about businesses, too. He promised to cut taxes for business investment, but not till the autumn. So the reaction from the CBI, the big business lobby, of course, Tony Dank is saying that it's not enough to tackle the current challenges facing firms. I mean, this is the the other issue, isn't it? If we don't get firms to grow and, you know, high-paying jobs for the UK, then, again, that's going to be a hit to living standards. So there's pressure to do more for businesses, surely. How much did he give? There is definitely pressure to do more for businesses, and the Chancellor has indicated that's a key part of his economic vision and his economic agenda. I mean, we didn't see much of that yesterday. We basically said, you'll hear from me again in the autumn. But he gave a lecture recently in which he talked about the importance of trying to boost business investment, which has been historically quite sluggish in the UK. So yesterday there wasn't much in the way of support for businesses. We may see something come around in the autumn. Now I'm sure businesses would like to see something sooner, but um, they may have to wait. Yeah. Um, and that's sort of a broader package here. There's a broader pattern, which is that he seems to have tried to be just enough to tide him over the next few months, and he's going to come back in the autumn with all the big, substantial policy decisions. I think he was hoping not to do anything at all this time around, but his hand was really forced. There is another report out from Letterlier BNP Paribas talking about high housing and childcare costs coupled with wealth inequalities risking social unrest in Britain. 
put this into context for us. I mean, I, I do think this is a kind of an extraordinary moment in Britain where households are just under so much pressure and there could be significant consequences, you know, if, if uh, people face that hit to their incomes. I think that's right. We don't, we've, as uh, you alluded to in the introduction, we're expecting now a hit to real household disposable incomes of more than 2% next year, the worst we've had in any single year since the late 1950s. So we just don't have experience in recent times of how the public are going to react to such uh, a squeeze on their living standards. It's not something we're accustomed to. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Well, let's bring back in Bloomberg UK economy reporter Lizzie Burden. Lizzie, thanks for being with us. So I just want to talk through one more issue with you. Before the statement, we talked about cuts to public sector workers being a way perhaps to save the Treasury money. Why do you think there was no mention of that? Well, before I come on to Rishi Sunak, I thought it was really interesting that the Shadow Chancellor Rachel Reeves was asked about whether Labour would increase public sector pay. And she kind of dodged the question. She said she'd leave it for officials to analyse. And it's a, it's a sore spot for Labour. Of course, the public sector workforce, the background to this, swelled during the pandemic. Think of all those health workers, administrators who had to be hired. But at the same time, you've got labour shortages in the private sector driving up wages. So the neat answer, and economists have suggested this, is that you shrink the public sector workforce so that you can pay the ones who are left more and fill the gaps in the private sector. But obviously, as Labour shadow chancellor, Rachel Reeves isn't going to suggest that. Um, Sunak maybe didn't mention it in his statement because it's up to the individual departments to let those workers go. But if you look at the bias towards workers in Sunak's measures, as we were talking about before, on the point about labour shortages, that bias could be seen as an incentive for people to rejoin the private workforce. But the problem with that is it's not that simple when the problem isn't necessarily a lack of motivation for people to you know, get off benefits and get back on your bike and come into work, but actually a skills mismatch after the pandemic. Mm, okay, so very interesting. Thanks so much. Bloomberg's Lizzie Burden then for a summary and a reaction to that spring statement. Let's continue then um, a, with our look on the impact on businesses because I also spoke to Seren Tiru this week, who's the head of economics at the British Chambers of Commerce, and I asked him what he thought about the statement as the Chancellor had to, only the day after, defend uh, what he was calling tax cuts. There were some measures that we welcomed, um, the cut in fuel duty and increasing employment allowance. But the big picture is, is that the measures announced, both for consumers and households, and as well as businesses, is that it fell well short of the support that they need to combat this unprecedented rise in cost pressures. So why did he not do more? 
Well, I, I think what he did, he looked at some of the uncertainties going forward. So while there was a cut, the ABL did cut their outlook for the uh, fiscal position of the UK, so government borrowing is expected to be lower uh, over the next few years than expected at the autumn budget back in October. Um, and what he looks like he's decided to do is to bank a lot of those savings, um, given some of the uncertainties going forward. Yeah. Well, given those uncertainties, I mean, the fiscal picture could get worse, couldn't it? Borrowing over the next fiscal year forecast to be £99 billion, £16 billion higher than the previous prediction. And you've got debt interest costs at a record. So there are significant concerns uh, driving that, that budget announcement. That is true. But what I would also say is that the impact of high inflation, for example, is actually giving a strong boost to tax receipts. And that's one of the reasons why why government borrowing is expected to be lower. Um, for example, we see higher high fuel costs. A lot of that is tax related. So even with the cut of fuel duty, uh, the, the tax take for government is, is going to be a lot larger. So I think that's a that's something that the government should be taking more account of. And the big sort of takeaway from the overall OBR forecast overall is that the government should really be more focused on the weakening outlook for the UK economy than the state of the public finances. Okay, Uh, so perhaps the balance is is wrong in your view. Um, The Chancellor did also promise to cut taxes for business investment, but not until autumn. The CBI, the main business lobby here, saying that it's not enough to tackle the current challenges facing companies. Um, What is your view at the British Chambers of Commerce then about what this is actually going to do? This This is the highest tax burden in Britain since 1949. What does that mean for your businesses? Well, uh, it is a real concern because the that, that increased tax burden comes at a time when businesses are facing a huge rise in raw material costs, the input costs into their products and supporting their services, and also surging energy costs as well. So it's the cumulative burden of all these cost prices. So this will have an impact on business activity, on investment intentions, particularly this year, but also on recruitment as well. But more, more importantly for the wider economy, it'll have, it will limit business' ability to keep a lid on prices. So unfortunately, while I'd like to see prices continue to go up, at least over the medium term. What about the cut to fuel duty of five pence per litre, a move worth about £2.4 billion? How important is that in, you know, when you put it in perspective for how much energy and prices at the pump are actually going up? Yes, that's right. It will help at the margins, but, but it's to be, to be frank, it's a drop in the ocean compared to the rising cost of fuel that many consumers and businesses are feeling at the moment. And of course, a lot of the drivers behind these upward pressure on costs are global in nature. But the government could have done a lot more to give both consumers and businesses a headroom to manage those rising costs. For example, we're disappointed that the government did not delay the increase in national insurance, which is a big burden on both consumers and businesses. Okay. Do you think that the chance is going to have to deliver more aid to consumers and businesses before the autumn budget? Well, unfortunately, economic outlook is going to get a lot worse. Inflation, as the OBR predicts, is going to peak at, at close double digits later on this year. That's clearly a concern for consumers and businesses. So we think government will need to intervene once again to support consumers and businesses. One of the things we'd like to see for businesses in particular is an energy price cap for smaller businesses who don't have protections that households have and don't have the bargaining power of large businesses. That will help provide businesses, those smaller businesses with headroom to keep living prices going forward.
My thanks to Sorrentiru at the British Chambers of Commerce there. And the perspective from Ethan Ilzetsky from the Centre for Economic Policy Research. He's also an associate professor at the London School of Economics. Unfortunately, I'm going to have to add to the chorus of uh, dissatisfaction about the uh, uh, the measures. And it's, it's not just that the measures are uh, not particularly generous. It's, it's also that they really don't address the core issues at hand. Um, so, for example, you know, cutting the fuel duty by 5P sounds like uh, really good politics for sure, um, but it's not really going to change uh, the, the core problem that global you know, uh, energy prices are going up. Uh, so, you know, we actually would like people to uh, consume less energy uh, when there's scarce energy. Instead, you know, what we should do is try to help people's uh, disposable income catch up with these price increases and, you know, put more po- money in the pockets of households uh, to be able to afford these uh, rising costs. Okay. Um, so there wasn't the fuel, yes. In terms of the messages then, I mean, there was a, a, a little bit of help for people who are going to use solar panels, for example, or transition to heat pumps, which is desperately needed given how leaky British buildings are and, and the pressure on, on you know, becoming more energy efficient. But you just say it's not enough. Well, I mean, those are those are long term issues, and I I commend the you know those issues. That is kind of planning for the long future. But you know, we have uh, as as the Office of Budget Responsibility pointed out that you know uh, incomes uh, are going to going to rise two uh, percent less than uh, inflation, and so living standards are going to be declining this year. And this is really going to be hurting people on the lower end of the income distribution, and you know, and and uh, and have uh, adverse social effects uh, as, mm. as uh, in addition to the econo- you know the broader economic effects does it actually raise the risk of recession here in the UK the tax burden is rising to 36.3% of UK GDP by 2026-27 versus 33% in the past this is a heavy tax burden the heaviest in fact in like 7 decades since since the early 50s well, I, I think we would have been, you know, in, in fairness uh, to the uh, chancellor, I think we would have been facing the risk of a recession this year uh, in any case. I mean, many of the factors that are leading to this are obviously out of of, uh, of the government's control with, uh, you know, with the Russian invasion of Ukraine and, uh, you know, global energy, not just local energy prices uh, uh, increasing. Uh, having said this, uh, there was really nothing in this budget that made me feel that uh, we are prepared uh, to, to respond to this, uh, to this crisis in, in, uh, in any substantial way. What about the promise of tax cuts for business investment then in the autumn? What about your hopes for what the Chancellor may do in the autumn, the, the, the bigger annual budget? Um, yeah, so I mean, I, I, I think, you know, cuts in business investment can help. But again, these are measures that are not going to stimulate the economy so much in the short run. These, you know, may may lead to productive investments for the longer term. Uh, you know, the, the tax, the income tax cut announced for 2024 can really only be viewed as uh, some kind of political uh uh, uh, ploy, um, as it's obviously not, you know, we, we don't know what the state of the economy is going to be in 2024. Um, uh, you know, I would hope that in the budget uh, in October, 
the criticism will sink in and uh, we will see more uh, relief at the, you know, uh, at, that is more targeted to those that are suffering most from this and, and you know, the people who have the largest uh, uh, inclination to consume uh, when, when, you know, we don't, we don't really need to cut taxes on people mm-hmm. who are just going to, you know, roll that back in uh, to financial markets. We, you know, we, we need the, the, the tax cuts at the lower end of the distribution to let mm-hmm. people continue support the, the, the real economy. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.